Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to discuss uh, repression and persecution of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community around the world. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community was founded in 1889 in Punjab, India. The group's founder, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, claimed to be the Mathir Messiah, a figure or religious leader prophesized in many religions to appear towards the end of the world. It has an estimated tens of millions of members globally, according to the group advocates, uh, including in South and Southeast Asia, West and North Africa, the United States, United Kingdom and Canada. Because of the differences between Ahmadiyya beliefs and beliefs in Sunni and Shia Islam, many Muslims consider Ahmadiyya Muslims to be heretics. Some governments that regulate the practice of Islam deem Ahmadiyya Muslims to be non-Muslims and place legal restrictions on Ahmadi uh, religious practice. Ahmadiyya Muslims also have faced repression and societal discrimination in both Muslim and non-Muslim majority countries. Recently, USERF published a new report just this week uh, documenting uh, persecution of Ahmadis in Pakistan, Algeria, and Malaysia in particular, highlighting that Ahmadiyya Muslims have long faced persecution, discrimination, and hostility in these countries based on laws and policies that violate their fundamental right to freedom of religion or belief. To answer some questions on this topic today, we have with us Amjad Khan, spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community USA. Welcome, Amjad. Thank you, Dwight. Thanks for having me. Well, to start off, uh, uh, could, if you could share with our audience a bit more uh, about the history and background of the global Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. Certainly. Uh, well, you covered uh, some of the key aspects in your introductory uh, comments. Uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community was founded in 1889, so it's a 19th century community. Uh, it is a revivalist movement within Islam. Uh, Ahmadi Muslims believe in the Kalima, which is the principal creed of a Muslim. And they espouse the motto of love for all and hatred for none. Uh, there are um, a number of key distinctions in the beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community relative to uh, the, the Sunni Muslim majority. Ritualistically, Ahmadis are in, in many ways orthodox. Um, they follow the, the standard Islamic schools of thought that majority Muslims follow. Um, obviously, all of the central principles of Islam, the pillars of Islam, the articles of faith, uh, all of that is espoused by every Ahmadi. Um, and as I mentioned, the Kalima itself, the principal creed of a Muslim, is also espoused by Ahmadi Muslims. The distinctions come with respect to the understanding of uh, the concept of a reformer or messianic figure who would come after the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So for Ahmadi Muslims, they believe that the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community occupied both roles, the role of the Mahdi, the promised Mahdi or reformer who would come after the prophet Muhammad, and the Messiah, 
or the messianic figure who would come. Uh, a bit theological uh, in its scope, but I'll, I'll kind of explain a bit here for your listeners that um, you know the idea of a Mahdi or a Messiah is is uh, definitely rooted in Islamic doctrine, and most Muslims await such a person. Um, the the Ahmadi Muslim community believes that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that the Mahdi and the Masih uh, would be one one in the same person, would occupy the same role. So Ahmadi Muslims believe that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, who is the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, claimed to be the individual who would occupy both those roles. Um, he, he did so by essentially, you know, in a metaphoric light, um, continuing uh, to revive the teachings of Islam that had been lost, and he would reform the behavior of Muslims in so doing. Now, most Muslims still await that person to come, um, and some uh, even say there would be a physical return of Jesus, but the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes that that uh, that um, role has already been fulfilled. All of the signs of the coming of the Messiah have been met, and that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad is that person. So significantly, Ahmadi Muslims don't claim that the that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was brought any new law or brought any new religion. Ahmadi Muslims believe Islam is the final and complete faith, but that there was a need to revive those teachings and restore those teachings and reform the behavior of Muslims, which had gone extreme. And so Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was that person who was prophesied to come. So that's the essential main uh, fundamental difference between our theological distinctions, I think, between Ahmadi Muslims and other Muslims. I will also say that uh, the concept of jihad is, um, is one that Ahmadi Muslims um, have a have I think a unique conception insofar as Ahmadi Muslims believe that the idea of a violent jihad or a, a jihad by aggression has no place in Islamic teachings, and the the promised Messiah figure Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, spoke about how uh, violent jihad should be denounced, and he preached and practiced. Um, what he termed a jihad of, of the soul and a jihad by the pen, um, jihad bil qalam as it's called, um, as the, the true jihad of the modern age and not a jihad that would require armed conflict. And so for that reason today, our community is established uh, in more than 200 countries and territories with millions of adherents. And um, the other major distinction for the Ahmadi Muslim community is there is a successorship uh, or what's called a khilafat or spiritual caliphate after Mirza Ghulam Ahmad passed away. And the current and fifth caliph, fifth successor to Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad leads the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and, uh, and it's faithful. And he currently resides in the United Kingdom. Well, thank you so much for that uh, context, Amjad. It's, I think it's very important for people to, to get a good sense of how the community came about and, and how it uh, functions uh, today. As you allude to, uh, and you sir, a recent report uh, demonstrates, I mean, Ahmadis, you know, face significant challenges, you know, from some of uh, the various uh, 
you know, not only uh, Sunni, Shia, Muslim communities, but also governments that use uh, interpretations of Islam and and other uh, you know, policies uh, to to discriminate in various countries around the world. It would be uh, helpful if you could lay out some of the biggest challenges uh, that uh, that the Ahmadi uh, community faces as far as uh, freedom of religion or belief uh, around the world. Certainly. Um, so Ahmadi Muslims are among the most persecuted Muslim communities in the world. Um, the, the key issue, as I explained earlier, is Ahmadi Muslims profess to be Muslims, but their belief is frequently irrelevant under legal institutions. This is most salient in Pakistan, which is the only Islamic state, uh, Muslim country, Muslim majority country in the world to define who is or is not a Muslim in its constitution. This is Article 260 of Pakistan's constitution. And the second amendment to Pakistan's constitution passed in 1974, amends article 260 to explicitly deprive members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community of their right to self-identify as Muslims. And that's in the constitution itself. So, um, so that has created a situation where Ahmadis are branded non-Muslim, even though they, they profess to be Muslim, and that's created um, uh, state institutionalized discrimination and persecution of the community. And there's a number of aspects to that um, around the world. Um, I'll talk, you know, there's several countries in which this is happening. Um, Pakistan, Indonesia, increasingly in Algeria, Malaysia, and other parts of the Muslim world. But really, I think the, the worst discrimination is faced in Pakistan. And that's because of this constitutional moment in 1974, which has led to a series of blasphemy laws and other criminal legislation that essentially criminalizes the existence of Ahmadis. So over 400 Ahmadi Muslims have been murdered in Pakistan since it was founded. The past five years have been especially brutal with targeted killings of multiple family members at a time and Ahmadi Muslim professionals, including doctors, lawyers, religious leaders, business people, teachers. Um, in 2010 alone, 99 Ahmadi Muslims were murdered that year. That was the deadliest year for the community. That included the murder of 86 Ahmadi Muslims on May 28, 2010, in a single attack in Lahore. That was one of Pakistan's worst terrorist attacks. It was committed by the Taliban in Pakistan, the TTP. And since then, in the past 10 years, over 150 Muslims have been murdered. And within the past 12 months, six Ahmadi Muslims were murdered as well. Um, the other uh, important issues to note um, is that, as I mentioned, in contravention of their own beliefs, every single Ahmadi Muslim man, woman, and child in Pakistan is declared to be non-Muslim by constitutional amendment. Now the state has also criminalized private acts of worship by Ahmadi Muslims. What I mean by that is if an Ahmadi, even in the privacy of their own home, reads the Quran, that would be deemed an offensive act. Um, and that, that has happened through a series of blasphemy laws, anti-Ahmadi laws that criminalize uh, specific acts uh, of worship or devotion by an Ahmadi. If they, if an Ahmadi says 
and uses the word assalamu alaikum if they uh, recite arabic in from the quran if they call their mosques mosques these are arrestable offenses and there have been over a thousand Ahmadis who've been prosecuted under these laws and many who languish in prison today in fact 12 current prisoners of conscience have been arrested under these laws and actually face uh, indefinite uh, life imprisonment, indefinite detention, and even capital punishment. And then the other piece I wish to mention here is since 1985, millions of Ahmadi Muslims, because there are millions in Pakistan, they cannot by operation of law fully and freely vote in national and provincial elections. And as of 2002, by an executive order, they're the only religious group in Pakistan excluded from the nation's joint electorate. They can only vote if they declare themselves to be a non-Muslim, declare the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, whom I mentioned earlier to be an imposter, and add their names to a separate supplemental list. And of course, no Ahmadi Muslim in good conscience would ever vote under these legally and morally reprehensible restrictions. So we're talking about uh, you know, almost 4,500 cases have been registered against Ahmadi Muslims under anti-blasphemy and anti-Ahmadi laws. They account, Ahmadi Muslims account for almost 40% of all arrests under Pakistan's blasphemy laws. 19 new cases against Ahmadi Muslims have been registered in the past few months as well. And then uh, Pakistan authorities have also demolished or set on fire or forcibly occupied or sealed uh, over 175 Ahmadi Muslim mosques. And they've denied the cemetery burial of at least 75 Ahmadi Muslims and have exhumed after burial the bodies of at least 39 Ahmadi Muslims. Um, and then eight Ahmadi Muslim mosques were destroyed by official local police at the behest of extreme uh, groups in 2021 alone. Yeah, that's a very uh, grim picture. Thanks for outlining that. I mean, there's no doubt that in uh, with the state of religious freedom in Pakistan, I mean, the treatment of um, Amity Muslims is one of the major reasons why we recommend them as a country of particular concern for those violations, as well as uh, the government's inability to, to, to protect the Amities, uh, even though they're perpetrators. But yeah, as you said, they're extremist groups who have targeted uh, the community for years. Um, it would be great if you could touch on uh, some other aspects of some of the, the laws or policies that have impacted Amadis in other uh, countries, other parts of the world, as well as, um, you know, uh, some of the various groups, the non-state actors that have uh, targeted Amadis. Are, could, you, could you give us an, a, a sense of what, some other countries, what, what the extent of the discrimination or uh, repression looks like? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned in Pakistan, I went into a, a lot of detail about the persecution there, and it stems from the blasphemy laws and legal apparatus that essentially uh, 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 punishes any uh, spoken or written representation that directly or indirectly outrages the religious sentiments of Muslims. This is the notorious Section 295C, the 50-word penal code provision um, which says that whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representation or by any imputation, innuendo or insinuation directly or indirectly defiles the sacred name of the Prophet Muhammad shall be punished with death or imprisonment for life and shall be liable for a fine. 
Now, this remarkably broad language allows any virtually anyone to register a blasphemy case against anyone else in Pakistan. And I, I talked specifically about the two of these laws uh, punishing Ahmadis for, quote, indirectly or directly posing as a Muslim. This is famously referred to as Ordinance 20. It was passed in, in 1984. And under that ordinance, Pakistani police have destroyed, you know, Ahmadi translations of the Quran, banned Ahmadi publications, the use of terminology, et cetera, um, and, you know, propagating, declaring their faith. The reason I mentioned that code section, Dwight, is because this is the playbook by which other countries are now using. So in Indonesia, 29 provinces have banned uh, Amity activities along the same lines using aspects of the 1965 blasphemy law that exists in that country. In Indonesia, only six heavenly fates are recognized without any recognition of the sects within each major faith tradition. So minority communities uh, you know, aren't recognized broadly by the state. And so seizing on that on that blasphemy law, many provinces have looked at Pakistan's blasphemy law, have looked at the restrictions around Ahmadi activities and have imposed decrees, ministerial decrees, provincial decrees that restrict Ahmadi practices. And the same thing is happening. Police are facilitating uh, active desecration of Ahmadi mosques that happened just, I think, a month or so ago in Indonesia where an Ahmadi mosque was destroyed and, and all of the Arabic removed and minarets demolished while the police watched. And this comes, in my mind, in my estimation, from the weaponization of law against Ahmadis. This is also true in Algeria, where uh, Ahmadis are, are deemed to be non-Muslim, legally restrict, uh, they're, they're prevented from having any houses of worship, and then Ahmadis are arrested and forcibly de denied their rights because they are posing as Muslims. This is true in Central Asia and parts of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. It's true in parts of the Middle East. We've seen it in Egypt uh, historically as well. Um, we've seen it in Malaysia where there's been, as Yusuf itself's recent fact sheet talks about, a lot of crackdown on Amadi self-identifying. So it is this legal apparatus that's essentially been being exported abroad. Let me ask you then um, just a couple of final questions here. Uh, our time goes by so quickly. But first, you know, can you can you share any examples of countries that have changed course over time? For example, that had some policies in place or laws even that that then over time the community was able to work with the uh, authorities and and that there some semblance of religious freedom has been respected in, in any part of the world. And then finally. Uh, based on your experience within the community advocating on behalf of your co-religionists and, and so on, uh, what would you consider some of the most effective responses in action from the United States government and international community writ large uh, in terms of uh, efforts uh, to uh, uh, put pressure on governments who are uh, discriminating, committing violations against uh, Amity Muslims? Yes, as it pertains to uh, relative success stories or positive developments, um, there aren't that many, unfortunately, but I would point to Bangladesh. I think that I, I know personally, having written a report uh, in conjunction with Human Rights Watch, you know, almost 16 years ago when I was a law student um, about Bangladesh's persecution, which was very severe at the time, 
that there has been a dramatic change in insofar as the state is cracking down on extreme groups who commit violence with impunity and um, are actually apprehending some of the worst anti-Amity assailants. And we've seen the government intervene and protect Amity houses of worship, uh, Amity mosques rather in Bangladesh and also uh, places of, for prayer, et cetera. There's still a long road ahead in Bangladesh, but I, I view Bangladesh as preventing the tide of extremism that Pakistan has been unable to do. So I would point to that as a success. In Indonesia as well, there has been, uh, the federal government has, has really tried to come forward to protect Amadis where they can. Um, they've, they've said the right things, but um, I think that there's still a long way to go as we saw with the recent attack um, it's more of a pre provincial problem than a, a nation nationwide problem, um, but the federal government, you know, has has to as a tightrope there because there are a lot of extreme anti-amity currents in in Indonesia and a blasphemy apparatus, but they are understanding the need to crack down on extremism. As to the question of what can be done or what has been effective in U.S. policy circles, there are a number of items. I would say first and foremost, I think. When the issues are framed as matters of citizenship rights, um, then there's effective measures that are taken. For example, Amadis can't vote in Pakistan freely, but that's but they are tax-paying citizens of Pakistan. They have a 99% literacy rate in Pakistan as opposed to a 50% literacy rate nationwide. So Amadis have contributed in the highest ways to society. So empowering them to have the basic ability to for franchise and not to have their vote suppressed, I think is something the US um, has in the past in their prior reports and in the future can push very hard because um, it's, a, it's a, a bit easier to ask for basic restoration of citizenship rights alongside all other religious communities. It's much more difficult to have the blasphemy laws repealed. So I think the citizenship angle is a very effective angle. I also would give one final example, Dwight, and that is with respect to this uh, this this new issue that emerged, which is the use of cyber laws, which are being weaponized against Amity digital content and individuals by the Pakistan Telecommunication Authority. You may know that the PTA sent uh, you know legal notices to American Amities and American Amity websites, threatening them for violating the laws and threatening jail time. And so we have seen uh, the U.S. intervene on that issue, and we're hopeful they will continue to intervene that Pakistan's blasphemy laws should not have extraterritorial application on, on U.S. citizens in America who are Ahmadi. And I think that's another area where the U.S. can be effective in preventing the worst of these atrocities from spilling into U.S. into the U.S. border. Thank you for highlighting that, Amjad. And I just wanted to say, I know that you were one of those uh, American citizens who were targeted by the Pakistani authorities. So hopefully uh, U.S. government action there can can uh, be helpful because clearly uh, they're obviously trying to reach out. It reminds me of some of what China's doing with some of its citizens to try to, uh, you know, use their long arm to go outside the country to stop uh, those who are advocating uh, for the rights of uh, their co-religious or any uh, groups uh, to try to to try to go after them. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it right here. But I really want to thank uh, Amjad Khan, spokesperson for the Ahmadiyya Muslim USA community, uh, for all of his work on behalf of the uh, Ahmadis uh, globally, but also your work 
uh, writ large on human rights and religious freedom. Um, you can find our new report on the persecution of uh, uh, Amity Muslims on our website at www.uscirf.gov. And I just want to thank you all for joining us today. And of course, we'll see you next time on the next episode of USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.